at my core, I'm not that different than all of you that are listening. I do what I do because I wake up in the morning, I turn on ESPN, and I watch ESPN all day. I watch it because I love it and I can't get enough of it. And I watched it all day. And what I heard was a bunch of people I love, a bunch of people I respect, and a bunch of people that are really smart that all had wrong opinions when it came to Ryan Tannehill. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Ton of NBA. We are going to get to a ton of NBA. We have 76ers at Miami. Obviously, that tips off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. We will keep you updated. And we're extra long tonight because we go all the way to 9.30 p.m. Eastern, getting you ready for Mavs and Suns, which you can hear here on ESPN Radio. So we got all sorts of NBA to get into. But... We start with some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Be careful what you wish for, Titans fans. Everybody's suddenly chiming in for a fan base that's constantly yelling, pay attention to my team. Well, now it's happening. And now you're not happy with what they're saying. And I would love to come on and tell you that you guys are wrong. But the fact is, I think it's a bunch of the people with microphones in front of their faces that have lost their minds when it comes to Ryan Tannehill and what his responsibilities are. Now, why are we talking about Ryan Tannehill? Well, if you watched the NFL draft, you saw Malik Willis get drafted in the third round, a quarterback out of Liberty, drafted in the third round when many people, myself included, thought that he would end up in the top 10 because we reach for quarterbacks. So now a quarterback goes into a market that if you have any understanding, you know that that market has no patience left with Ryan Tannehill. The way they lost in the playoffs has been put squarely at his feet, and it means fans and possibly the organization seem fed up. So, all of that leads to Ryan Tannehill being asked at the press conference about mentoring Malik Willis, and this is what he had to say. You know, I have no problems with Malik, and we're competing against each other. We're, uh, you know, watching the same tape. We're, we're doing the same drills. I don't think it's my job to mentor him, but, you know, if he learns, learns from me along the way, then, then that's a great thing. All right, so a lot to break down there. And I know it doesn't seem like there's a lot to break down there. Everybody wants to make this simple, but it's not simple. Number one, Ryan Tannehill says it's not his job to mentor him. And that's the piece that everybody has flocked to. Let's understand first and foremost that not mentoring doesn't mean shutting him out. Not mentoring Malik Willis doesn't mean that he's not going to give Malik any information. Uh, Suddenly he's been turned into this, he's going to be a bad teammate that hurts his team because he won't mentor the backup quarterback without any understanding that there is an in-between here. I don't have to help you, but I don't have to hurt you either. They're going to be in the same room. They're going to be learning from everybody. And guess what? It's not Ryan Tannehill's job to mentor. Now, we've heard a lot of former players chime in on this all over social media, especially at other positions, wide receivers, running back corner. Not every position is the same when it comes to the concept of mentoring, though. I'll tell you a story here at ESPN. When I first got my job at ESPN, I knew I was going to need help. I don't know this, uh, this campus. I don't know how to navigate the walls here. So the first thing I did was starting e- started emailing people that uh, I respect. Kevin Nagandi, one of the greats here at ESPN, emailed me right back. I'd never even hosted a national radio show full-time. And Nagandi emailed me back, and he said, let's sit down. And we sat down at the CAF. I didn't even know where the CAF was. We sat down at the CAF for hours on ESPN campus while he gave me everything I could possibly need to know about who to make sure I talk to, how to navigate the ups and downs. And to this day, I get texts from Nagandi all the time, just checking in. How's it going? What can I help you with? He's a great mentor to me. 
There's been several. Reese uh, has been a great mentor. I, I can go up and down the line of people at ESPN that have been great mentors. I won't throw anybody under the bus, but I will tell you this. There are a handful of national media people that work for ESPN that have still never emailed me back. They've never texted me back, and they're not here to help me. And guess what? That's okay. If somebody doesn't want to help me, it doesn't mean I can't learn. I still learn from being around people. It's my job to learn how to do my job. And mentoring is something I do in this capacity all the time. I try and help anybody that's coming up at ESPN, anybody that's coming up in media in general. I think a lot of you can speak to the fact that I respond to the DMs that come to my account. What do I need to know? When I was traveling with game day, I would talk to media kids. How do I break in? What do I need to know? I take that seriously. But I take that seriously here and also acknowledge the fact that I wouldn't have been good at that in the music business. There's one fiddle player in most bands. And frankly, there's only about 10 fiddle players when I was making a living as a fiddle player in the entire country that were making full-time living that way. If I walked up onto a tour bus one day and I said, hey guys, what's going on? And somebody said, oh, the new guy back here, he's younger, he's cheaper. By the way, he plays a fiddle. We're going to develop him. Don't worry. It won't affect your job. We just want you to show him everything that you do so that you can make sure that he's in a good position should you ever have a problem. Like if you go down with an injury and don't laugh, like I remember a guitar player on one tour broke his arm playing basketball. We had to get another guitar player that day, right? So you know what? If, if there's an issue, we just want you to teach this fiddle player. My answer to that wouldn't have been no. It would have been hell no followed by an up yours and followed by a trying to find a way to get another gig. How many of you right now work a job that matters to how you pay your living? Like you, you feed your family with what you do. Now take your fan hat off for a second. This is really hard for people to do. Take your fan hat off for a second. Stop asking the people that you root for to be Superman and start allowing them to be human. When you do that, what do you find? Well, if you walked in tomorrow and you sell widgets, you make spreadsheets, you sell cars, you're a telemarketer, you walk in and somebody says, hey, I know where you are on the pay grade. This guy over here, way cheaper, also younger. Now, we may or may not build for the future, but we really need you to make sure that this person knows everything they need to know to do your job. You doing it? Be honest. Are you doing it? Oh, man, if I inject truth theorem in you, you know the answer to that. The answer across the board is no. But we expect, we expect this from Ryan Tannehill? Why? In fact, I don't want to add anything to Tannehill's plate. He was bad at the end of last season. He's got to play better going into this season. If he doesn't play better, he's going to lose his job. Maybe we should let him focus on being a quarterback and doing everything he needs to do as a quarterback and not suddenly worrying about making sure that the guy that could replace him is getting better at what he needs to do. You guys can disagree with me, by the way. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. That's 888-729-3776. Do you think? And tell me why I'm wrong. I will always listen to the other side of this equation. Tell me why Ryan Tannehill has a responsibility to the Tennessee Titans to be some sort of a big leader for them and make sure that Malik Willis is ready to take his job. You can also tweet me, at Jason Fitz. I want Ryan Tannehill to be successful. Because I root for players to go get theirs. I want Malik Willis to be successful. But guess what? Malik Willis doesn't need Ryan Tannehill to turn around and show him everything to learn in the process. We saw Ben Roethlisberger 
not willing to to be a mentor to a third-round pick in Mason Rudolph. We've seen Tom Brady force Jimmy G out of town. We've seen Brett Favre be awful to Aaron Rodgers, and then guess what? Aaron Rodgers being not so kumbaya to Jordan Love. And we've accepted it in most of these instances. Why? Because when a quarterback's playing really well, when a quarterback is the face of the franchise, we accept that that quarterback might be wired differently and just might need to do things his way. Well, I'm going to allow Ryan Tannehill the same grace that we allow any other quarterback starting in the NFL. And I'm going to presume that Ryan Tannehill can be the starting quarterback and that Malik Willis is smart enough to learn and develop underneath that starting quarterback without anybody having to, air quotes, mentor, without anybody having to call him at 830 at night and say, hey, you remember to do this? Don't forget that. Maybe that isn't the kumbaya way to do business. But if it makes the Titans better right now, who cares? That's some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Next hour, I'm going to tell you why this is all the Titans' fault, and it's going to destroy the team going into this year. We'll get to that later in the show. But as we continue to get your thoughts on it, is Ryan Tannehill's job to mentor Malik Willis? 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. You can, uh, you can chime in that way, plus we'll get you caught up and ready for NBA action next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain off tonight, Jason Fitz flying solo. Got NBA action tipping off in about 15 minutes between the Heat and the 76ers. We will get you caught up on that. Also, Carolina and the Bruins are tied at zero just underway on ESPN in the NHL. Stanley Cup playoffs are underway. Don't want to miss any of that. Also, we'll keep you updated on all of it as it goes. I just spent several minutes telling everybody why I don't think it's Ryan Tannehill's job to mentor Malik Willis, and you guys are fired up about it. We'll let you chime in. 888-SAY-ESPN-888-729-3776. We'll go to a call in just a second. Quickly, though, I will say... I'm fired up about the fact that I'm in a high chair. Like, I'm, I'm sitting in studio in a particularly tall, seated chair because I like to sit up. Like, I think the energy is good. I'm also 5'9", like, and a quarter. So, the, the, there's a little bit of mockery coming. Devin, producer extraordinaire, and Billy, uh, the guys behind the glass, are laughing at me openly. I think a guy can sit in a very tall chair, and it's still good, Devin. I don't understand what the problem is here. Does it make you feel like a big boy? Well, it does make me. That, that's Billy. Yeah, it does make me feel a little bit like a big boy. Uh, Devin, I think I'm... I, I like it because... For anyone's listening, the setup, I have a large computer in front of me. Yeah. And if you weren't sitting up, I wouldn't be able to see you right now. See? It's important for energy and eye contact. I mean, yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, I'm tall, so it doesn't really matter to me. I can see you guys regardless. It, Billy's also. We're short kings, you and yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, that's, king is the ultimate word there. Billy's uh, wearing an ugly uh, orange hoodie anyway, so his count, his opinion doesn't count. All right. John and Maryland chiming in. Triple eight, say ESPN, 888-729-3776. John, give me what you got, man. Thanks for calling the show. Yeah, hey, thanks, Fitz. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, you're my favorite gas bag on ESPN. Oh, thanks. But I, I have to say, on this one, I, I think you're a little out of touch with, you know, how corporate America works. And a good example would be, like, the widget maker that, that you used as an example, right? So think about manufacturing jobs, like, you know, auto workers, anybody that's on a line, right? The, the more senior, senior you get, the higher your salary goes. Guess what they do? They always tell you they bring in a junior guy or girl and say, look, you need to train this person at what you do because they can do it for a lot less money. It happens in real estate. It happens in pretty much all aspects of corporate America. 
on a regular basis. People, as they get older and more senior, are not asked. They're told you're going to train your your replacement. And if those people, and that's a fair example, John, I mean, I mean, I'll answer this. So I'll say this is my, my clap back to that. If those people were worth roughly a hundred million dollars and set to make $22 million this year, they would have a lot more choice. If they had choice in the matter, would they handle it the same way? Uh, I don't think so. I, that, that's that would be my only response to John. We lost John. Uh, uh, and look, that that is a fair comment. I did work in the corporate world long enough in team environments and finance, where you know a lot of times we were told to train other people. It was not specifically to take our jobs as it stood. You know, I think that becomes a much more difficult pill to swallow. And frankly, in my mind, when you turn around and say, "Okay, what does it mean to train somebody else?" I would also say that there's a difference when there's only one position available if there were only 32 widget makers in the entire world and you had to train the backup widget makers you'd probably be more resistant to do that like it's just i I think it's human for ryan Tannehill to be that way ryan in kentucky thanks for calling the show man we appreciate you what you got well i mean i have to say i see it on both sides i mean ryan Tannehill definitely shouldn't come off like a bad teammate it's easy to see why he he would come off as a bad teammate but you know, we all hear the players talk about how much of a cutthroat business it is. So let's let's be honest. We all we all know what he's really doing. We we agree. We all agree. But he should be a little bit more tactful in front of the media. So you know, I see the whole picture. And honestly, uh, as a, as a lifelong Bengals fan uh, who traveled to see them win that playoff game, if Ryan Tannehill wants to teach Malik Willis how to throw clutch picks, I'm all for it, man. <laughs> I had Desmond Ritter for it. I'm, I had Desmond Ritter going over Brian Tannehill, or excuse me, Malik Willis anyway, so he can teach him everything he knows. Oh, Ryan, that, that's the call of the day right there. I love getting that shade in all day, every day. Uh, and, and look, I think honestly, just, just being real, if you listen to the entirety of the answer from Ryan Tannehill, I don't think he was that. I, I think he was more tactful than he's getting credit for being. We've just taken the one sam- soundbite from that. All right, let's see. You guys are, are fired up about it, so let's see what Randy in Indiana thinks. Randy, thanks for calling the show, man. Appreciate you. Hey, we're talking about the Tennessee Titans football team. Where's your definition of team? Where does it start and finish? Team means all in. We got to do what we got to do for the team. Yeah, Rand- yes, he passes on his knowledge. Uh, I I think you're right about the team aspect of it. I'll go back to this, too. I had the opportunity before the draft to sit down and get a tattoo with Max Crosby of the Raiders, of my beloved Raiders. And we spent, I don't know, three and a half hours sitting there in a chair getting just scraped to death and trying not to drop F-bombs while we had real-life conversations. Max uh, was incredible, by the way. We played some of those features the NFL draft, and I'll be putting some of them out on social this week. One thing that really hit me when I asked Max about Derek Carr, because uh, Raiders fans have been so split for the for years about Derek Carr, and one thing that really hit me in his answer when we were talking about D.C. was he said, look, Carr's one of the leaders on this team. I'm one of the leaders on this team. All the, And he would just started naming name after name after name. I do think that we overblow the element of leadership in this and how much assignment we put to Ryan Tannehill when, frankly, the quarterback coach is going to be responsible for that. Mike Vrabel is going to be responsible for that. The offensive coordinator is going to be responsible for that. Like, everybody in that locker room is responsible for mentoring that young man. And, you know, Zach Mettenberg, who was a Titans quarterback years ago, we were buddies when he was on the roster. I talked to him a bunch, and, you know, he talked about just sort of the the people he leaned on within the organization. And you start thinking about that. It's not one person's responsibility to show anybody how to be a professional. 
It's all of theirs. It's all of their responsibility to look at this. And that's that to me, that's that's lost in all of this. Uh, Patrick in South Florida. Patrick, thanks for calling the show, man. What do you got? So, you know, I, I disagree a lot with uh, I, I think Tannehill doesn't have an obligation to, to anybody uh, other in, in the organization. He just needs to perform. It's a results oriented business. Um, I wouldn't doubt that Willis at some point might get some packages. Um, and look, over the year, if Tannehill struggles and Willis is flashing, he's out. His obligation to the team, to the organization, to put up numbers to win games. That's it. I mean, it doesn't mean he has to be – he can be a good teammate, but really the onus is on Willis and the organization, not Tannehill, to prepare him to take the job. Thanks. Patrick, I appreciate the call. And I'll add one other thing to it. Malik Willis – is not going to be the starting quarterback of the Tennessee Titans this year. I don't think Malik Willis is ever going to be the starting quarterback of the Tennessee Titans. If they truly believed he was going to be the future of the franchise, they don't wait till the third round to draft him. He fell to the third round because everybody that needed a quarterback found problems with him, not once, not twice, some of them three times, right? I looked at Field Yates on our draft broadcast right before he was picked, and what I said to Field on air, was are we at the spot where even if you don't need a quarterback, you're like, ah, what the hell? Let's take a flyer on him. He's, he's so cheap. Why not? And that was literally said just before, we didn't know it was happening, Malik Willis was drafted by the Titans. Right? You don't draft the future of your franchise or the person you plan to be the future of your franchise in the third round at quarterback. It just rarely happens. Best case scenario, you got Mason Rudolph. How you feeling about that? If the Titans genuinely believed that Malik Willis was going to be the future quarterback, they would have taken him much much higher. That's just the way the draft works. And if they didn't believe any of that, if they just took Malik Willis, that leads to another problem we'll break down later on in the show. But I, I, I look at this from Titans fans and I say, look, don't fall victim to what we did. Every one of us with a microphone spent months blowing this quarterback class up. And I said on this show repeatedly, none of them were worth taking and banking your franchise on over and over again. And over the course of three days, the NFL proved that that logic was right. Teams don't have patience. And they had patience enough to say no to Malik Willis for a reason. Will he have a future? I hope, but I don't think so. Uh, We'll keep breaking it down. But up next, how important is Draymond to the Golden State Warriors? And why do we all love him so much? We'll tell you next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM, Channel 80. Presented by Progressive and Fit. Progressive and Fitz. That's good. Presented by Progressive Insurance. I made it through the whole draft. You know, never said anybody's name wrong. Was on such a roll. Even it, it carried over into Monday Night Show. Felt good. Now all of a sudden, I'm back to me. I have no idea how to speak. Uh, you guys are going to get the chance to chime in some more on Ryan Tannehill. Also, I'm asking you on Twitter to tweet me at Jason Fitz in honor of Draymond Green getting everybody fired up. Who's the one must-see villain in sports you, you just have to watch all the time? Uh, getting a ton of responses on that on Twitter. We'll get to a little bit of that later. But uh, also, don't forget, tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast. Gets you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcasts. All right, we're going to get some insight now on all things NBA from a new guest. We've never hung out before, so we're about to become uh, absolute besties to the force of the next few minutes. And that is from basketballnews.com, writer, podcaster, co-host of the Dunker Spot co- podcast, Nikias Duncan. Nikias, thanks so much for your time. Everybody's talking about uh, the injury and ejection last night, and now I'm hearing about the code. So do you agree that Dylan Brooks of Memphis violated the code last night? 
Um, I think there is a code, and like I would agree that that kind of crossed the line because it didn't really look like a play on the ball from Dylan Brooks. Um, I do understand the mantra like no easy baskets, but I could understand him trying to wrap him up if he could get there before he went up. But since that wasn't the case and we get the whack on the head, like I don't think there's a place for that. And so I definitely understand why Steve Kerr was as upset as he was. Well, it makes me think of unwritten rules in baseball, right? So we're used to that when it happens. There's retaliation from within baseball. So when it comes to retaliation from this, there's a couple of options. I mean, the league could suspend Dylan Brooks, but if he doesn't get suspended, then they could choose to get their own vengeance on the court. How does this play out? Um, like, hopefully there is a suspension for game three. Like, again, I just – that foul was – that didn't look great live. And then once you get into the replays, you can just tell. Like, it just didn't really look like a basketball play for the most part. So, I think suspension for game three would be enough for me. Um, I'm not a big unwritten rule person. That's why I'm not as fuzzy on baseball as some of my friends are. And so, I don't want yeah, it to turn into hard foul versus how, hard foul versus another hard foul because we've already had some Draymond stuff in the series as well. Like, I wanted to stay basketball, but – I think the suspension, then I wouldn't be surprised if we do see, like, a hard screen, regularly illegal screen early in the game against Dylan Brooks just to let him know that you're there. But hopefully it doesn't turn into anything malicious. You're talking about Draymond, too. And, I mean, it's impossible not to talk about this series and talk about sort of the edge he has right now. Throughout the course of the rest of this series, does that become an advantage or does that become one of those things where he has to make sure he doesn't get too emotional? Um, They're going to need him. They're going to need him. I don't think he can get too locked into, like, the verbal back and forth. Like, part of the, emo- the emotion is what makes Draymond who he is. So it's never going to be a wise thing to be like, hey, just stay silent, docile, whatever. But he can't get to the point to where he's picking up flagrants or technicals and taking himself out of the game because they need him to anchor that defense. We saw some of the issues that Golden State had late in game two defending, particularly when they went to their super small lineup. So I think the more Draymond you can get, the better. I feel like I could make an argument over the first couple of games that, you know, for Memphis, they could have lost both of them. You know, maybe they don't get a perfect night from John. All of a sudden they're down 0-2. Or you could look at it and say, well, they were one bucket away from being up 2 nothing. What From what you've seen in the first two games, who has the advantage the rest of the way? Um, I would lean Golden State just because I trust the shooting to bounce back because it just wasn't really there for them, particularly from Steph and Clay in game two. And I just trust them to be a little bit more solid defensively. For Memphis, they have they've had these possessions through two games to where they defend the initial action from Golden State really well, and then you'll get Steph Curry relocating and then running into a handoff and it's an open shot. And for Memphis, they have the athletes they have the athletes out there and they have pretty good defensive personnel, but I just don't trust the mental lapses to diminish in a way that they can beat Golden State three more times. So that's kind of where I lean right now. We're talking to basketballnews.com writer and podcaster Nikaias Duncan on Spain and Fitz. Jason Fitz flying solo. When you talk about not being able to shoot, my God, I just keep thinking about the Bucks last night. Like, I don't know. They didn't eat their Wheaties. I don't know what the problem is. So we've seen two <laughs> wildly inconsistent games so far in this series. Who has the edge in that one moving forward? Um, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit torn right now. Um, full disclosure, I picked the Bucks in seven before the series. And so I, I haven't seen anything to knock me off of that prediction. I will say the math is starting to favor Boston a little bit because the big thing for Milwaukee, one, Giannis was just terrible. And <laughs> that's a huge test of what Boston was able to do defensively. And I was intrigued with how much single coverage they gave Giannis. You would think a guy like that, like we saw in the Bulls series, you send double teams, get the ball out of his hands, and make those other guys beat you. Boston was content with saying, hey, score over Al Horford, score over Grant Williams, score over Robert Williams, see what you can do, and we're just going to stay home. 
And so now Boston gets the bounce back game in terms of shooting in game two. And Milwaukee not only shot poorly, but they didn't even get up a lot of threes, period. And so I'm interested to see how Milwaukee is able to open up the offense a little bit in game three and beyond. I think that's going to be the key that really determines like how much of a series it's going to be. It's going to be alarming how many people are yelling about uh, Budenholzer and the lack of adjustments if they don't get that figured out. It's like the annual thing we get to yell about every single year. I mean, I'm looking at no Marcus Smart, though. How, how are injuries going to impact this series in your mind moving forward? Um, it would be nice to have Marcus Smart back. Uh, Derek White was a pretty reasonable um, substitute for Marcus Smart defensively. Offensively, you felt the absence. Like, the rim pressure wasn't the same. The shooting certainly isn't the same. And it's not like Marcus Smart is an elite shooter to begin with. And so Boston was able to win game two behind their dominant defense, and they got a shooting regression um, in game two. But they can't afford for Derrick White to be a zero offensively. They're going to need something from him. Um, so I'm I'm going to be watching that. Um, and this is going to be a physical series, period. Like, Milwaukee will lay it out on you. We've seen Boston uh, more so in game two than in game one, but especially in that Brooklyn series. They'll also rough you up off the ball. They will put you on the deck if you try to get inside. So I think health can swing it because there are going to be a lot of body blows in the series. We are running long tonight on Spain and Fitz because we're taking you all the way up to Mavs' sons on ESPN Radio, which just makes me think Luca is a delight. Can he by himself essentially will the Mavericks to a win in that series? Um, I don't think he can do it by himself, no. I think you're going to need more Jalen Brunson and better Jalen Brunson. You're going to need Spencer Dinwiddie to chip in as a creator because Phoenix is – you never want to say they're content with a guy dropping 45, but from a scheme perspective, I don't think Phoenix was super worried about the way that Luka got a lot of the shots. Um, a lot of the pick and rolls that Luka Doncic ran were pretty much a two-on-two or dev, um, ordeal. Uh, Phoenix didn't show a lot of help on the initial screen. If they got a switch, then they would show a little bit of help off of those non-shooters, and that's where you get Maxi Kleber knocking down threes and some of the others stepping up in that way. So it's going to take those others supplementing what Luka does to really have a shot in this series. Considering what Phoenix did last year in the playoffs and then how good they were in the regular season, I feel like if they were a bigger market, there'd be a massive amount of pressure. Is there pressure that they start to feel at some point in this playoff run? Um, I think the pressure really kicks in in the Western Conference Finals because they're either going to be looking at a Memphis team super athletic you have a guy at a job that can get to the realm almost on a whim and that can beat some of the switches that Phoenix wants to do, or it's Golden State. And it's Stephen Curry, it's Clay Thompson, it's Jordan Poole, it's Andrew Wiggins, um, all that veteran experience. And then you kind of look like, okay, you were a top five offense and defense this year. You led the NBA in wins by far. Would be kind of a disappointment if you don't make the finals after a campaign like that. So I think the conference finals was really when they kicked in. Against Dallas, Luka's incredible, but the rest of the support cast, I don't really trust against Phoenix's defense. So I think this should be a series they win pretty easily if they stay healthy. Nikias, I think somewhere in my contract it says I'm obligated to talk about the Lakers every time I talk about the NBA. I'm pretty sure it's in there oh, somewhere in the final. No. It's just got to be there somewhere. Uh, all, all of the talking heads today are telling me that Phil Jackson, part of this coaching search, which leads to, like, could LeBron leave the Lakers? Uh, is there anything there in your mind that, that leads us to a LeBronless Lakers next season? Uh, I would highly doubt it. Um, it's funny. I actually wrote about this during the all-star weekend uh, for basketballnews.com when LeBron made his comments about potentially flirting with Cleveland. He walked those back and he pretty much gaslit some of the media, which was fun. But I would be surprised if we see a move this summer. Like, I think they're going to try to figure out what to do with Russell Westbrook go from there. And like LeBron, on top of being great, like he's also a prideful dude. Like, I don't think he wants to come off of this campaign and be like, actually, I just want out. Like, I think he's going to want a chance 
to be healthy, get Anthony Davis back healthy, either get a better Russell Westbrook or somebody or somebody's to replace Russell Westbrook and then try to run it back with the Lakers next year. I don't think we see any movement on that front until next offseason. Look at us getting that contractual obligation taken care of. Follow him on Twitter at Nikias NBA. <laughs> check out the Dunker Spot podcast and check him out on basketballnews.com. Nikias, really appreciate your time, my friend. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for having me, man. By the way, Philadelphia up by four early on Miami, uh, 15-11, about midway through the first, which means Billy working behind the scenes is not focused at all. I just want to let you know, like, he's just not focused at all. But that's part of what we love about him. Although, I'm just saying he showed up on a day where Philly's playing and he's not wearing any Philly gear. So, I don't know that he's really a true fan. We just, we learned something about Billy. Uh, We have also learned something about Draymond. I'm going to make a very me analogy here and tell you why Draymond Green is actually essentially a living, breathing, NBA WWE superstar. I'll explain it all to you next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Great storylines. Great movies. Great moments in sports are so often defined by heroes and villains. I feel like it takes both. And part of the reason that at different times we've fallen in love with certain eras of the NBA, certain eras of the NFL, has as much to do with the greats as it has to do with the villains. Think about movies. Batman is better when he's facing the best of the best in villainy. Right? Superman was better when there was a good villain for him to take on. Horror movies are spectacular if you have the right villain and the right person that they're going afterward. After That's all part of the process. And I feel like the NBA has hit its stride with one of its biggest characters right now. That's Draymond Green. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. And look, I, I want to be careful here and make sure that Draymond knows, because obviously he's listening. Uh, Draymond knows that this is all said with incredible respect. Like, when I say villain... I don't necessarily mean somebody that you root against because they're a bad person. I don't mean that you root against them because of their character, even their style of play. Some people just embrace the role of villain. Look at what Stephen A. has done for our network when it comes to anything involving the Dallas Cowboys, right? Like, it's just sometimes you need a person that can be a personality that takes on the role in huge ways. And that's what Warriors, uh, the Warriors Draymond Green has done. Now, all of this comes partially from him flipping off the Grizzlies fans as he was on the way to the locker room after taking an elbow to the face. He uh, he decided to use that moment to let Grizzlies fans know how he feels about them. He was asked afterwards, and I think his, on, his answer was fairly honest. If you're going to boo somebody who get elbowed in the eye and face running on blood, you should get flipped off. So I'll take the fine. I'll go do an appearance and make up the money. But... It felt really good to flip them off. You're going to boo someone that get elbowed in the eye and blood running down your face? I could have had a concussion or anything. So if they're going to be that nasty, I can be nasty too. And I'm assuming the cheers was because they know I'll get fined. Great, I make $25 million a year. I should be just fine. Oh, that's the moment that I just smile. I smile all the way to my core because I'm a middle-aged dude that watched WWF growing up, right? Like, And if you watch now WWE growing up, you know Million Dollar Man. Everybody has a price. 
Right. He was the easiest guy to hate. He wasn't even really a good wrestler and wasn't even really a well-defined character from that moment. He was just fun to watch. I was re-watching because sometimes, you know, I can't sleep at night. So when I can't sleep, like, uh, sleep's an optional thing for me in life. So I'll just be laying there and I'm like, you know what? I'll revisit nostalgia in my childhood. So I'll pull up Peacock to watch old WWE episodes from like the 80s. and the late 80s, early 90s, the best part about that era was you had these great heroes and you had these villains that were so easy to root against. I was watching The Million Dollar Man, and he brought this little kid up, and he was like, if you can bounce the ball 100 times, I'll give you $100. And on the ninth bounce, he kicked the ball away from the kid so he wouldn't give him the money. And then he looks at everybody and says, everybody has a price. Think about Draymond sitting here saying, fine, I'll get fined. I make $25 bucks a year. I'll do a speaking engagement. I'll be all right. I mean, that level of WWE Million Dollar Man is amazing, but it got me thinking about the Warriors in general. I wonder if the entire team is essentially late 80s wrestling roster right in front of you. I mean, think about it. Like, everybody loves Steph. Everybody loved Hulk. Steph is Hulk Hogan. Like, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, do all the right things, everything's going to work out great, right? Like, he's Hulk. Clay, sometimes a good guy, sometimes a bad guy, plays the edge on it, but either way you root for him, so he's sort of macho man. Like, Clay's macho man. And now Draymond is this combination of the Million Dollar Man and Andre the Giant and everybody else all sort of wrapped up in one. He's got that level of, like, up yours to everything he does. Just the thought of flipping off the fans. Like, when you see the best of the best of villains in professional wrestling, they are not afraid to stand at the middle of the ring, take the mic, tell everybody exactly what they think of the stinky city they happen to be in right in that moment. Like, that's the level of what we're getting from Draymond here. And I love it. That's why I've asked you guys on Twitter to chime in. At Jason Fitz, who's the one must-see villain in sports that you absolutely cannot get away from? I mean, that's what this is. This is becoming absolute must-see consumption because not only do you have Draymond flipping off fans, you have Draymond after an ejection for a flagrant two doing an emergency podcast that the world tuned into. And if you don't believe me, just ask J.J. Redick, ESPN NBA analyst today, absolutely took. I mean, he took Mad Dog and Stephen A. behind the woodshed, and he said, you think about what you said when he broke it down like this. I want to take a little umbrage with yeah, the, you're allowed. The, the, Go ahead. the shut up and play because that has the same sort of connotations that the shut up and dribble crowd has towards athletes, and I have a real problem with that. And specifically with Draymond, the idea that America is tired of him you do realize the guy has a very, very popular podcast that he hosts where he talks himself I for agree. a majority of the episode, right. and people listen to that. He signed a talent deal with Turner right. because people want to hear what Draymond has to say. That is true. The reason they want to hear what Draymond has to say is because just like in this press conference, he is real, authentic, and unfiltered. And as a player, he is real, authentic, and unfiltered. The edge that he carries himself with He's talked about this since game one. Clay Thompson has talked about this since game one. It's what makes him great. It's what makes him a future Hall of Famer. It's the reason he is who he is. I mean, all of that is real. And that's new media. If you're Draymond, Spade and Fitz, by the way, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. If you're Draymond, you know this. And you're taking advantage of every opportunity to be who you are authentically because it gives you the chance to speak for yourself. I think about what media is now, especially for NBA players. They understand the power that their microphone holds. Frankly, they don't need our microphones. 
They can come out and speak exactly their truth, exactly the way they want to, and they don't need anybody to interpret it. And we'll flock to the content to break it down. Draymond's winning in every possible way. Like, he's not just a villain right now. He's a champion because we talk about everything he says. We talk about everything he does. And he's playing at a high level. I asked you guys to tweet me uh, who it is that you absolutely must see. Getting a bunch of Chris Pauls. I don't really think a Chris Paul is being that villain. Also, glad Sarah's not here right now because I've had several Dennis Rodmans and some Michael Jordans. Like, I don't think a Michael Jordan is being the villain, but maybe I'm in my maybe I'm in my age here. Where all I think about is like like Mike. I could be like Mike. Like, I don't think of that. But uh, Trey Young, that's a good one. Shannon chimed in with Trey Young. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Knicks fans at this point that would agree with that. I think you're at your best. It doesn't matter what sport it is. When you've clearly got people that are that level of, let's say, in honor of May the 4th, Darth Vader. Like, they're really badass, but they're also a bad guy. Like, they play that part of the bad guy. And there's just enough twinge of good guy in them that you can still root for. That's what Draymond's encapsulating. That's what Tom Brady has been for so many people. Bill Belichick has been for so many people. Like, just the the opportunity to look at somebody and be like, I am rooting against this person. But in the process of it, I can't stop watching this person. And what's surprising to me, frankly, out of the Memphis uh, Golden State series, is that a series I thought was going to be all about dynamic offense and movement of the ball and shooting has turned out instead to be an incredibly physical, violent series. What you see are two teams aggressively moving the basketball at each other And in the process of recklessly approaching the rim, they're causing physicality. Draymond's not backing down from that. But most importantly, in the moment afterwards, when you wonder what's going on, you can either translate the truth through a bunch of bloviating gas bags, or you can hear the truth directly from the person that's part of it. Draymond's providing that. And he's providing it in a real, authentic, and uncensored way. And if that means he flips off every crowd in the process... I'm here for all the enjoyment because sometimes the best part of sports aren't just the heroes, but it's the villains. And when they are equally successful and powerful, that is when every sport it is, it is at its absolute best. Give me more of this all throughout the playoffs. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. We'll keep you updated on all the playoff action going on in the NBA and, of course, the NHL. But next up, I'll explain why the Titans are to blame for everything that's happening with their organization right now. And it all started at the draft. That's next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It feels like there's total chaos right now in Nashville with everything going on with the Tennessee Titans. And it's led to a lot of people yelling at and about quarterback Ryan Tannehill. But what if everything that's happening right now is squarely the fault of the organization and they are the ones that should be speaking for the whys, the hows, and how they intend to fix it? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And look, we'll get back to the NBA. A lot of action going on right now. Miami has taken a lead, as you just heard in SportsCenter. Uh, they finished the first quarter with a lead over Philadelphia. Philadelphia keeping it close, fell apart a little bit at the end of the first. We'll see where that goes from there. And you're going to get bonus time from us tonight as we will take you all the way up to 9.30 e, uh, p.m. Eastern where you'll be able to hear the Mavs-Suns game on ESPN Radio. You don't want to miss any of that. We'll get back to the NBA fun, I promise. But in the meantime... We've got football to talk about because everybody's talking about Ryan Tannehill 
and the fact that he said it's not his job to mentor rookie Malik Willis. Remember, Malik Willis was taken in the third round. Now, it leads to a big question about who's responsible for what. And through the process of breaking down who's responsible for what, you guys are tweeting me, you were calling last hour. I said, I don't think it's his job to mentor anybody. I think it's an organization's job to create that culture. Now, who would know quarterbacks better than former quarterbacks? And I would say that we have one uh, on our roster that's always worth listening to. I think he does great work. He's been doing a lot of work with us this year, RG3. Now, quick story here. I'm walking through the halls after I finished the second day of the draft. Day three of the NFL Draft Digitally, I'm walking through the ESPN area. I see RG3. I'm walking there. I haven't met him. We have a mutual buddy. So I'm like, hey, RG3, what's going on? I'm walking up. This is when you remember your role at ESPN. He looked at me, no idea who I was, who I worked for, none of that stuff. And the security guy that was with him sort of like tried to stop me for that second. I was like, we've got a mutual friend. I also work for ESPN. I had to like, I had to like shame my way into uh, saying hi to RG3. Now that we've said that, I'm about to tell you why RG3 is wrong. This is what he said on SportsCenter, our ESPN football analyst, about Ryan Tannehill and his refusal to mentor Malik Willis. Ryan Tannehill saying that he doesn't want to mentor Malik Willis is a recipe for disaster for the Tennessee Titans. He's right. It's not in his job description to mentor Malik, but as the quarterback of the team, it is his job to lead. And what message are you sending to your teammates if you're saying, look, I'm only going to look out for myself and I'm not going to help the guy next to me get better for the betterment of the team? You know, it's his job as the quarterback to take care of the young guy. And, yeah, you can lead by example, but when you verbalize that you're not going to be his mentor or it's not your job to be his mentor, you're already making the situation standoffish. So as a leader, leadership comes with the cost of ego. And Ryan Tannehill needs to check his ego at the door. What message are you sending? Ego. We're going to talk about those things with Ryan Tannehill without acknowledging that the reason we're in this situation in the first place is because of the message that the Tennessee Titans chose to send to their locker room? The message the Tennessee Titans chose to show with the ego in the way they approached the NFL draft this year? Where is the ownership in the Titans for the chaos that's being created? Look, you chose to spend a third-round draft pick on an, on a quarterback that many mocks had going at the top. And as a result, now, because he's been so overhyped by the media, you allowed this conversation to be created. You made a day-three decision on the draft to possibly make the future of your team better, knowing full well that you were going to make your quarterback room, at the very least, complicated. Now, we can talk about the fact that Ryan Tannehill also acknowledged that he uh, he wasn't told about this advance. I heard Bart Scott earlier saying, how soft are you that you need to know? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. You've got a starting quarterback that the local media spends every day questioning whether or not he should be with the team. The local media spends all day, every day taking calls on whether Ryan Tannehill should even be behind center. And you created this conversation. And you know damn well you did it. And it's not the first time you did it over the course of the draft. The Titans chose on the first round of the draft to let A.J. Brown, one of the better wide receivers in the league, walk for a couple of million dollars. And let me say a couple of million dollars loudly. Don't don't listen to any of the noise about $25 million. That's what he got from the Eagles. Multiple reports from us and even from A.J. Brown's mouth have said that the Titans were prepared to offer $20 million. He was prepared to sign for 22. We may never know if that's true or not, but what we do know is in that process, you're talking about a $2 million difference. 
So I would counter RG3's point by saying, what message did the Titans send to their own locker room when they said, hey, this guy here that we drafted, that we developed, that we we have told is a star, that the head coach went on national radio just weeks ago and said, as long as I'm the coach, he's not going anywhere. What message did you send when you let him go for a couple million dollars difference? When you let arguably, let's say, let's say generously, A.J. Brown is the sixth best wide receiver in the NFL this year. Why do I say that? Because they replaced him with the sixth best wide receiver in this year's draft. How pompous are you as an organization to think that you can let a superstar walk that it doesn't send a message to the locker room. And if you don't believe me, I will tell you, I work very closely with people that know the organization well, that are not comfortable on air saying what it does to the locker room when somebody like that doesn't get signed. I can say that with some confidence. You sent a message to your locker room day one where you said, hey, we're not going to pay A.J. Brown. Uh, Everybody's replaceable. You made your offense worse. Even if Burks, and I hope I hope Burks, Traylon Burks, the wide receiver out of Arkansas that they drafted with the pick that they acquired for A.J. Brown, I hope Burks turns out to be a star. But I think anybody that thinks that Burks walks in the door and is A.J. Brown has lost their damn mind. Why would you presume that the sixth best, even if you're right, why would you presume that the sixth best wide receiver in this year's draft is ready to step up and be one of the 10 best wide receivers in the entire NFL this year. We were in Vegas. I'll use this analogy. We all have that buddy. They walked in to a roulette table and put all of their chips, everything they have, the money they couldn't afford to gamble, they put it all on black and they let it ride. Now, sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. When you win, you can tell everybody you were brilliant. You had some, like, sense that it was going to come up that way. But if you have real friends around you, they'll tell you it was a bad bet. It was a stupid bet to make. Even when you're right sometimes, you still make stupid bets. The Titans might be right. But in an AFC where I'm looking across the board and I'm saying, huh, the Chiefs out there, constantly one of the best teams. They may they may have struggled by getting rid of Tyreek Hill, but they went out in the draft and they aggressively addressed their defense. So you could at least find an argument that they're better. You can make an argument across the board. The Bills are still a great team. The Chargers have gotten better. The Raiders have gotten better. Keep going. The Bengals have addressed every one of their difficulties. You can go across the league and say, look at how many teams have gotten better. And in a year where they are in the window to try and compete for a Super Bowl, the Titans made themselves worse. Maybe maybe instead of worrying about whatever the message is that Ryan Tannehill is sending the locker room, we should look up and ask what message GM John Robinson and head coach Mike Vrabel are sending by telling the media one thing and then doing something else, by avoiding the specific questions they were asked about it in the press conference, by avoiding the entire topic, and by allowing multiple things to happen that can fraction, uh, that can split their locker room because that's what the Titans chose to do. So forgive me for not worrying about Ryan Tannehill when I have to worry organizationally about what the hell the entire organization is trying to accomplish with the moves that they made. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more at Progressive.com. All right, you guys know I love college football. I work a lot in college football, and I know all of you are fired up about name, image, and likeness. The problem is name, image, likeness, and fear-mongering have now gone hand-in-hand. I'm going to fix it all for you and tell you what it means next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
Here's the problem with fandom and the way we talk about college football. Sometimes we love the sport, and I say we because I do. I genuinely, I don't give a damn who wins or loses. I love covering college football. And what I've seen over the course of the last six months are a lot of people that love college football. College football isn't just part of their life. It is their life. And those people have taken a very reasonable conversation with nuance around name, image, and likeness, and they've turned it into fear-mongering. At this point, name, image, likeness as a conversation has become almost as bad as political talk has become on social media. And what's happened is we've lost the middle ground that has real and honest solutions in my mind. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. I'll get to name, image, likeness in just a second. A lot of you guys want to chime in on what we've been talking about. I just talked a lot. I just ripped on the Tennessee Titans. I love you, Nashville. But I uh, ripped on the Tennessee Titans largely because of the Ryan Tannehill quotes about his uh, job and, and mentoring. Matt in Tennessee wants to chime in. Matt, thanks for calling the show, man. What do you got? Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Um I kind of want to make a comparison with the uh, Tannehill-Willis uh, combo right there. Um, I kind of see it. I'll tell you right now, I'm a Bears fan, and I kind of saw this last year with Justin Fields and Andy Dalton. If you were to tell me that Justin Fields uh, could be mentored on the field as far as, like, on the field action by Andy Dalton, I'd, I'd kind of call you a little bit crazy, you know what I mean? So where this guy's going is they're, they're two different quarterbacks, two different types of play style. And I just kind of want to know why this him not wanting to be that type of mentor to him is kind of the big surprise. I just don't get it. Yeah, I, well, I agree with you, Matt, and thanks for the call. I, I think that part of this we also have to realize that Malik Willis, one of our draft analysts said to me that uh, Malik Willis was throwing to wide receivers that would make me look tall on 5'9 and a quarter, right? So it shows you sort of the level of competition. Malik's somebody that's going to need a long time to develop, in my mind. I always thought that. And also, he's a third-round draft pick. Big difference between, hey, you're a temporary starter uh, mentoring a first-round draft pick versus you are a guy getting paid, and now we want you to mentor our third-round draft pick. Like, I, I really understand where Ryan Tannehill's coming from on this. Uh, appreciate the call. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. That's the way you get in on the fun and the conversation. We'll take more calls as the show goes on, obviously. But name, image, likeness has a lot of people fired up. And I got into a little bit of an argument with Matt Berry, Sports Center anchor and college football uh, analyst extraordinaire, as he came in uh, over the course of the weekend talking about the wild, wild west and the yelling about it and how everything that happened happened without a plan. And because so many of us with the microphone were yelling in support of the athletes without a plan, we've now ended up with something that is not fixable. I disagree with all of that, all the way to its core. Now, is it fixable? What needs to be fixed first and foremost? Are we talking about competitive balance? I I think it's fairly asinine to think that competitive balance has existed in the last 20 years in college football. I mean, it's fairly cyclical, but tell me how competitive balance has existed when, frankly, I host a playoff rankings reaction show where we legit, I mean, peel behind the curtain. We spend days sitting there saying, what are we going to talk about this week that's interesting because we all know the six teams that are going to be in the top six. Like, there's not this great chaos in college football that gives us random champions every year. And frankly, uh, if we're talking about mid-majors trying to compete, when's the last time mid-majors regularly competed? So you're talking about competitive balance being broken without acknowledging that competitive balance is already broken. 
Now, if the wide receiver uh, that everybody's got an eye on, Addison out of uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, he transfers because he wants more name image likeness. Okay. What's wrong with that? I mean, if we live in a world where suddenly a bunch of guys are going to pay a bunch of money to a bunch of players to play, who cares? Why is that a terrible thing? I always use the violin metric on it, but I have to say it again for anyone that hasn't heard it. I could have gone to, let's use an example, Indiana. Indiana has one of the best music programs in the country. Indiana uh, would have, or they did at the time, offered me a full scholarship to go there and be a violinist. That's right. Full scholarship. And with that full scholarship, I would have gotten a free tuition. I would have gotten the best teachers in the entire world. They had them at the time. The best facilities. An advantage in any future opportunity because I can say I went to Indiana Bloomington. It it gets you better auditions when you come out. All of that for my free education. And while I was doing it, I also had every right and opportunity to play in orchestras, to take gigs, to make all the money I wanted on the side. In fact, I could even charge more as a violin teacher because I was going to Indiana. It's the way the system worked. So why is it that I, as a violin kid at Indiana, would have opportunities for me when I have the same world-class teaching, world-class facilities, world-class opportunities, and you're not going to offer that to the kid that's playing basketball? The kids that are playing football? If these kids have the opportunity to monetize, why is it a bad thing? I refuse to see a negative, especially when you start including all of the athletes that don't have the opportunity to monetize. This is their opportunity. If you're a swimmer at Michigan State, guess what? You are not going to have this glorious life in front of you where you make a ton of cash. But while you're swimming at Michigan State, you can do clinics, you can coach, you can go turn around, you can help judge different events, you can make money. If you're a wrestler in Iowa, man, you may not have a path. You may not have a path that's going to make you a lot of money. But my God, there are kids from all over the country that flock to Iowa, to the University of Iowa, to get help in summer camps from wrestling. Imagine the opportunity. We're just looking at football and basketball because that's all we give a damn about. And if that's all we give a damn about, then tell me this. At some point, why do we not expect the brilliant minds at the greatest institutions in America to have the intelligence to figure out how to work a new system? I lived in Nashville for more than 20 years of my life. When I bought a house in Hendersonville, Tennessee, that house, you could buy a decent house built in the 60s for 125 k Now that same house in Hendersonville, Tennessee, costs about half a million. I may not like the increase in pricing, but that doesn't mean I get to turn around and suddenly throttle down the market. It's now my job to figure out how to thrive in a new economy. That's what we ask every business to do. We don't turn around and say, you know what? Things are really difficult for Apple right now, so how can we make sure that we make everything more affordable for them? We don't do that. If these schools want to be institutions with great football programs and they have to figure out how to raise different money, let them. And if your concern is that the transfer portal is going to let players rise, A, why are we worried about players getting better opportunity? B, why don't you think then that other players will rise up to replace those players? And C, oh my God, what's the worst case scenario? A D3 kid that is paying his own way through college at Wisconsin Whitewater might actually get the chance because he's improved his skill and technique to move up into a scholarship. Oh, God forbid. Everybody keeps talking about this like it's the wild, wild west. Even if it is. The NCAA can and will change those rules whenever they want to. If they can, 
through the courts. If they can't through the courts, then that tells you that this was so asinine to begin with that it should have been illegal. Think about that. If we go to the court system and the court system says, nah, man, you can't do that. Why would we want to return to that system? I'm not asking for anything here other than for everybody to calm down. And if we all calm down and we all step back and we stop yelling about what it all means for the future, I think what we might find is that over the course of the next several years, a new track is going to be figured out. And when that new track is figured out, everything will, to a certain extent, normalize into whatever the new version of college athletics looks like. In the meantime, after generations of schools getting everything they wanted from players, if there's a little bit of time where players get everything they want from schools, I'm in for every single ounce of that. While they're figuring out the new normal, why not let the individuals that are out there working their butts off benefit, not just in football, not just in basketball, but across all NCAA sports. Stop listening to the yellers. Start thinking realistically. Coming up, we'll figure out how the NCAA is already trying to fight back. We'll talk to an expert next, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, and as always, hanging out with you on the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. You guys can get in on the conversation. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. As you just heard on SportsCenter right now, we're looking at Miami up over Philly, 5749 got about a minute to go in the second we will keep you updated on all the NBA and NHL action as it goes down. We'll get back to name image likeness with an expert in just a second. But Edwin in Texas calling into the show. Thanks for calling the show man. What do you got? This is Edwin in Texas. I just want to say you're spot on with your uh, view of that uh, change to the NCAA. It's a free economy and uh, the athletes deserve the opportunity to make uh, money. Uh, the colleges make millions, the coaches make millions, the networks make millions, and I think it's only fair for the athletes. Yeah, thanks for the call, Evan. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you agreeing with me. By the way, quick, real quick, I always love the tax argument, too. Like, look, the first time I ever made any money in my life, I didn't know how to do taxes. It's amazing how you find somebody to help you with that. Like, when you make money, you can find people to help you figure out what to do with your money. So let's not get into that trap either. All right. I want to get some expertise now. And one of the guys that makes me smarter every single day, Sports Illustrated college football writer Ross Dellinger joins us. Ross, I appreciate it. You got a great article out there on some of the change that NCAA powers are looking at right now because they th- this is all working out differently than the they thought it would. So I guess I would ask you, what did the powers think would be uh, powers at B think would be happening from what you could figure out? <laughs> Good question, right? I think a lot of them um, uh, were hopeful that you know last summer, before July one happened, before some of these state NIL laws kicked in, they would have a permanent uh, kind of NIL policy to govern it. Uh, and it would include guardrails and things like boosters could not be involved kind of thing. Um, they tabled that, as we all know, as you mentioned there, they tabled the proposal because of the outcome in the Alston case, uh, the loss in the Supreme Court Alston case. And because of that, right, there really weren't any guardrails or guidance of much of anything. Vague, very vague rules. And what's happened is very smart, savvy, and very wealthy boosters have gotten skirted the rules, right? They've, they've walked around them, so to speak, and um, are – pretty brazenly uh, offering inducement, inducements and in, in, in getting involved in recruiting, uh, mass, kind of masquerading these 
payments as as NIL payments. Um, so the NCA hopes to uh, take the policy they had last summer that they tabled and take some elements out of it and uh, and kind of use it to remind schools, hey, boosters, no matter if they're part of collectives or whatnot, uh, can't be involved in recruiting. If states are individually figuring out what name, image, likeness looks like, can the NCAA legally step in and decide that they're going to make a policy that may not align with all of those states? Probably not, you know, and I think that's why we're probably going to see a lot of uh, a lot of lawsuits, uh, right? A lot of legal challenges from some very wealthy and, and smart, uh, you know, a lot of these boosters are lawyers, um, and, and a lot of them have formed these companies that are, as one put it to me, well-oiled machines. Uh, they know what they're doing. They have quid pro quo. They're, they have all these documented deals, and, um, and they're protected, as you mentioned, by state laws. At least 30 states have state laws. And those state laws say basically you can offer um, uh, college athletes uh, name, image, and likeness deals. It's kind of open for business, so to speak. Um, and that's what's happening. So if there, if, there, is there, if there is some enforcement from the NCAA, you can bet that, uh, that there will be legal challenges and there will be some lawsuits that um, point back to – the state laws because a lot of these boosters believe they are protected by state laws uh, and they are doing things that are in compliance with state laws in the the interim NCAA policy so you're smarter than i am ross and that's why i read your stuff all the time so make this make sense on return on investment because i keep looking at somebody like quinn ewers for anybody that doesn't know hot quarterback uh, recruit everybody fell in love with got some name image likeness money turns out that he never really makes a squad right like and he's bouncing around so i look at it from an investment standpoint saying even if a bunch of rich people continue to spend money if these kids don't make impact and have return on investment how from a business standpoint is that even a sustainable investment well and i think you hear the word a lot and nick Satan said it right it's not sustainable it's not sustainable you hear that over and over again Try to tell that to John Ruiz, uh, who uh, is worth about four billion dollars, billion with a B, and uh, going to spend ten to twenty million dollars in a way bankrolling the Miami athletic department. It, it sounds like, or the, the the football team and some other teams. Uh, you know, for him, ten to twenty million dollars is the drop in the bucket. It's it's ten twenty dollars for us. Um, and so people like that, I don't think they care about return on investment. Um, he cites return on investment. He says he's seeing it, especially through social media. But it, I don't think it matters to, to people like that. I, I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think we're going to see um, boost big boosters like that care a whole lot. Um, I did talk to some other boosters though. You know, there are some that aren't billionaires, right? There's one uh, down in Baton Rouge with the LSU program. He's spending a half a million dollars, and um, I asked him about return on investment. And he said he's going to need to see something because he can't continuously do that every year. So it just depends on how kind of how I guess how wealthy these guys are. Uh, we forget that there are boosters that are wealthy enough to own NFL teams. My God, we're talking to Ross Ellinger, Sports Illustrated college football writer, Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, flying solo. So when I think about everything that we put together, the other thing that becomes part of the conversation is competitive balance. So if mm. the toothpaste can never go back in the tube, what eventually happens in your mind to competitive balance? Well, um, I have athletic directors that tell me all the time uh, two things. You can't legislate integrity, and you can't 
legislate competitive balance. And the NCAA for years now has been trying to legislate both of those things. And it's just really, really hard to do. Um, and I think for a while there now they've realized they can't legislate integrity. Um, but I think they're realizing they can't legislate competitive balance anymore. They can't try anymore. And so that's kind of – that's gone. That's that's kind of out. And um, you just let the market decide what the market does, and and that's how it's going to work. Yes, the the uh, schools with the, the biggest, deep, deep, most deep-pocketed boosters, right, are going to have the advantage and are, are going to get all the best players. Well, I don't know. I mean, some people would say that's been happening for 30 to 50 years, uh, that the, the schools with the biggest donors have, have gotten the best players. So will it change the landscape? Sure. I, I'm sure it will change the landscape a little bit. Will it lead to, like, uh, a real change as far as the powers of football? I'm not so sure. Uh, outside of those teams, some that we've mentioned on the call that are kind of desperate, that haven't won in a while, right, where you, you have the boosters, very high-level boosters of these kind of desperate teams that haven't won and want to get back in the winner's circle, like AMs, the Miamis, the Tennessees. Maybe you see them coming back a little more. Yeah, and and by the way, like none of that feels like the death of the sport. I mean, I, I guess the other part of it that I'm trying to figure out is how it all normalizes because in any market, whether it's the stock market or the housing market, like in any business, eventually there's this massive spike. Everybody says, well, that this can't last forever. And then you get to some sort of a, a normal ground. If, if nothing happens, if nobody changes anything about the rules and regulations in five years, will it have sort of normalized itself? Yeah. I mean, um, you would think the market will, as they say, correct itself or, or, or uh, normalize, like you said, of, of some sort. Uh, I, I'm sure, yeah, if nothing does change with the guidelines and regulations and such, I guess eventually that you would think that would happen in some way. Uh, and you're going to see the consequences of some of these actions, right? You're going to see a lot of players who go in the portal, transfer for money, and then realize this was a bad decision. I, maybe I don't want to be at this school. Um, maybe I shouldn't have done this. You'll see, you might see a lot of that. You might see a lot of boosters like we were just talking about who pay all this money and your team goes five and seven or, or the, the player transfers that you, you lured to your school. So I'm sure there will be a lot of um, lessons learned, hard lessons learned over the next year or so. And that's always the interesting thing, Ross, is that I feel like everybody's yelling now, but it's going to take five or ten years before we really know what the long-term impact is. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Ross Dellinger. If you don't, you should, and you should check him out. Doing great work as the college football writer for Sports Illustrated. Always a fan of your work. Really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me. No problem. Thanks. All right, we'll keep taking your thoughts on it, obviously. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Uh, just a Billy update for everybody. He's getting a little saucy at this point. Like, it's halftime. Uh, his 76ers are not winning. He's wearing a hat, a hoodie, a shirt, pants. None of it says Philly on it. I think it's all his fault, Devin. The extra half hour, is gonna he's going to get real salty here in a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I mean, too. this is, this is I don't irritable. know what's happening. He's, he's starting to get irritable. I mean, I mean, my, guys, my guys are down, down eight. Without uh, without Embiid, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, he says he's hard, good. He almost said Harden too, which yeah, I guess. I did. Yeah. I mean, Harden, Harden, you could Harden say that too. Well. I guess. He's got 15 in the first half. Love <sighs> that for him. I mean, yeah, sure, sure. We'll keep you up. Billy will keep you updated. We'll know from the whole tone of the show. In the meantime, the NFL is expanding their package internationally, and it doesn't make any sense to me. I'll tell you what they should be doing next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo. Miami 
up on Philly, 60 to 52 at the half. Carolina is absolutely embarrassing Boston right now. Three to nothing in the NHL. Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs underway. Also, Tampa Bay up 2 nothing on Toronto. So the entire country of Canada puckered up as everybody expected this to be the run for the Maple Leafs. Uh, two nothing. Uh, by the way, the NHL playoffs are on ESPN right now. So if you want to get a little catch of that, like I love the guys on the broadcast, but just you know, mute that. Keep us. Keep hanging out with me. Uh, but you can watch Carolina. Uh, Boston has just scored, so it's now three uh, one in that one uh, with about five uh, to go in the second. And again, Toronto up two. Uh, Tampa Bay up two nothing on Toronto. We will keep you updated on all of the action. Uh, by the way, Harden and Tyrese Maxey combined for 27 points, their most and a half since the second half of game one of the Raptors series. So let's see if they can keep any action going to try and keep uh, Billy happy. It's all about Billy working behind the scenes on the show. Philly fan. Uh, Philly Billy is maybe the new nickname. I don't know if we've ever done Philly Billy. Um, Billy from Philly is, is, is what I'm calling No, that's too many words. Uh, Philly Billy is more fun. No, we're not in for Philly Billy. I'm all in for Philly Billy. Uh, Devin, we can make this a thing. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with our easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Okay, you guys can chime in. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. We're not going anywhere. You get overtime, bonus time tonight, because we're going all the way up to 930, where you can check out Mavs Sons on ESPN Radio with all the NBA action going up. But there's been a ton of football news as uh, we got the announcement today. Now, let me start by saying schedule release day might be the dumbest day on the sports calendar for the NFL of the entire year. Because if you Google right now, for anybody that doesn't know, there's 17 games in a season. For the next, I think, eight years, 14 of those 17 games are predetermined for your favorite team. So if you, like me, are a Raiders fan, you can go out and Google Raiders 2027 schedule, and you'll know 14 of the 17 teams. The other three games every year are determined by what place you finish in your conference. So we've known since the absolute last day of the regular season, every single team that your favorite team is going to play. All we're going to learn on schedule day, release day, is what day you're going to play each of those teams. What day, and if you're primetime Monday night, that determines a lot of how you schedule things, what games you're going to go to as a fan. You know what I mean? It is a little bit more fleshed out than what you're saying, I think. I mean, yes, you'll find out the whens and the hows, and I get you can make your road trips and figure out when you're going to try and go to Vegas, right? Like, that's what everybody wants to do. I get it. I'm just saying, like, for me personally, I I mean, my God, I have a Raiders tattoo. Like, I'm that idiot, right? I now have an NFL draft tattoo added to my, my arm of life moments. I love football so much it hurts. I'll check the schedule out like the day after it's released. I don't need to watch like an 18-hour slow reveal. Uh, But one thing we did find out today is that there are specifics to the expanded international package. So instead of just getting a few games in London, we're now adding more and more out there to everybody. So the NFL announced that Seattle and Tampa Bay will be the first German game. So uh, the two teams will face off at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on November 13th at Alliance Arena, home of a soccer team that I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation of. Uh, there will be three games played in London next season. So those are all out there for you. Uh, a bunch of action there. And then we've got Mexico City also. So instead of just being some games in London, we now have games in Germany. We have another game in Mexico City. Uh, that's a you know spectacular work by the international crew behind the NFL trying to grow the sport. That being said... I don't understand any of it. I really don't. 
so I'll, I'll flash back to because everything comes back to music, right? It can be a shot drink, a drinking game for you, like the number of times I mentioned my music career. But I was lucky enough to tour the UK and Europe quite a bit. And I remember years ago being over there and a bunch of the guys that were on our crew for our tour uh, also worked on the NFL crew. And I was like, oh, my God, how, how, how do you like it? What, what's the experience like? And one of the guys was like, I just don't understand why they send the same two teams every year. Because he thought that every year they were getting the same matchup, even though every year they were getting different matchups. Like, the sport either is or it isn't over there. Much like anybody trying to grow, you know, Premier League over here. It's a difficult thing to do. That being said, I'm not sure what the end game is for that growth. Again, if you go back to touring, you have to start touring the UK early because otherwise, eventually, it's not worth it, right? Like, you can make more money just playing shows in the US and Canada. That's like a real economics decision. The NFL has decided that globalization is an economics decision. But for me, what I said years ago when I was just a little podcast trying to get discovered is that instead of having a game in London, frankly, at the time, I would have done a game, an exhibit, uh, one of these games every year in a neutral site like Vegas, not knowing that Vegas would eventually become the home of the Raiders. So now what? To me, there are huge college football markets all across the country with beautiful stadiums that everybody loves. I don't know if you saw the Garth Brooks playing uh, Colin Baton Rouge at LSU on Twitter, but oh my God, the crowd got so hyped for Garth Brooks playing Colin Baton Rouge in Baton Rouge that it actually registered like an earthquake on campus. Think about that. I've been to a bunch of these college campuses and my God, there is such energy to it. You want to tell me that you couldn't take some of these teams and put them in great markets that don't get NFL games all the time and you would get rabid growth right there. Expansion right there. I keep thinking about what Nashville was when I moved there. I moved to Nashville before the Titans existed, right? Uh, they were still, it was the year that the Houston Oilers moved to Memphis, and there were the Memphis Oilers my first year in Nashville. And at the time, one of the challenges the Titans faced is that there are so many Cowboys fans in Tennessee. In fact, there are so many Cowboys fans in Nashville that one of the local sports stations still carries Cowboys games as their games on Sunday. Right? Think about the globalization of that brand and tell me what it would look like to have the Cowboys play anybody in Oklahoma. Have the Cowboys play anybody in Alabama. You want to tell me there's not opportunity? For me, growth has to have an end game. And growth in England, the end game that we're always going to talk about is expansion that allows for a team to play in England. I can't find a way that ever makes that sustainable. I can't find a way that ever makes that real. To me, just the travel alone that would be required, the scheduling alone that would be required to buy buy weeks to get everybody acclimated is wild. So the concept that eventually we're going to find an NFL team in London or an NFL team in Germany, it's far more likely that what we're going to see is London used as leverage every single time a city wants a new stadium for free. Every time a team wants a, a new building built for them for nothing, they'll say, well, if you don't do it, London will. That's all this is. So we're going to do an international series so they can sell some merch and they can inconvenience their fan base and they can take away a home game all so that they can try and grow the game internationally? Man, I don't know. I think there's work for the NFL. As much as the NFL is always king, there's the ability to take more of the market. And you take more of the market by doing fun things in attainable markets. 
something I credit the NBA for for a long time, is the fact that they put Summer League in Vegas. Helped grow the game there. If and when an NBA franchise ever comes to Vegas, there's already built-in fandom of the product because of the work they put in a market that didn't even have a team. That, to me, would be far more justifiable than thinking about what it does to everybody in the competitive process by sending them to Germany, Mexico City, London, or anywhere else that takes away a home game, that takes away a fan experience, all for growth in a market they never intend to grow to. It'll never make sense to me. And we can all make it a fun thing to talk about each week that there's one of those games, but it's still opportunity lost. By the way, be sure to check out all the ESPN and NFL release schedule shows. They will be delightful. Because our, the guys that talk about it and the girls that talk about it are amazing. That's all I'm saying. Luka d- dropped 46 points against the Suns in game one. Is it sustainable and can it be enough? We'll find out next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. No need to adjust your radio. No, these are not the smooth, sultry tones of Freddie Coleman. No, you're getting bonus Spain and Fitz. That's what's happening. Got an extra 30 minutes happening for you tonight. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. And uh, we're, we're giving you a little extra time because we are leading up to an incredible basketball game tonight that you can listen to on ESPN Radio, of course, as we've got Mavs taking on the Suns. And we're going to get a breakdown of it. I've been flying solo all night. Like, I'm a little Han Solo in May the 4th action here. Like, I like to think that I'm Han Solo. Always wanted to be Han Solo, by the way. Maybe it's because I have dark hair. I don't know. I just thought it was cooler than Luke Skywalker. So if I'm Han Solo, that means that Mark Kestershire gets to be Chewbacca because we're now a dynamic duo. <laughs> and uh, honestly, just because I thought, you know, that would nobody else called you Chewy today. Mark, uh, appreciate your time, Kesty. Thanks for hanging out with me. Uh, you must have saw me at the pool in Vegas and said <laughs> that that man needs uh, to have the back shaved or something. That, that makes perfect sense, Fitz. Oh, that's perfect. That's delightful. <laughs> uh, all right, so we got a game tonight that I'm trying to figure out because Luka Doncic was incredible in game one, but it wasn't enough. So if you're Luka, what needs to change to, to get a win out of this game? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing, and uh, for folks, I hope they stick around uh, for pregame coverage with uh, Kevin Winter coming up in about a half hour. You'll hear our interview with Jason Kidd, and I didn't go back and count all the times he said it, but it felt like it was about eight or nine, and he talked about defense. (laughs) And I think at one point he said, uh, we played uh, a shoot-around defense at the beginning of game number one. So I think that's the biggest thing. Yes, I think Luka does need some help, obviously, uh, you know, because scoring has been an issue. Defense has not been the issue, but it was giving up 69 points in the first half of game one. So that's the first thing is just to see what the adjustments are. We saw, you know, some small, uh, subtle adjustments on DeAndre Ayton, which is the really tough matchup here fits for, you know, the Mavericks who, you know, play small ball. They're a small team. But if it starts on the defensive end, if they don't turn it over like they did three or four times in the first two minutes in game one, they got to get off, as Jason Kidd said, to the first quarter start like they played in the fourth quarter. And then maybe we're talking about something. But, you know, to answer your question, I'm watching Jalen Brunson hit shot after shot after shot right now in practice. And uh, he's going to have to be uh, the Robin to Lucas Batman here tonight if we're talking on the offensive end. You know, and, and that makes me think about the Suns' approach defensively. Are they comfortable just letting Luka go off and just take that loss however you take it and figure out the rest of the team? Or do they approach him differently tonight? You know, I, that's a great point because I think that's not a bad strategy, right? You know, if you're going to let him go for 50 or 55 and, you know, uh, whatever offense they have comes discombobulated, then, yeah, that's not a bad strategy at all. But, you know, you listen to 
uh, one of the great young defenders in our league, Mikel Bridges, and him talking about how difficult it was, you know, to, to match up against Luka, getting beat, you know, time and time again, or at least making it difficult on him. And Luka's uncanny, obviously, as we know. Um, you know, he's so big, he's so strong, and can score in so many different ways that, you know, he knows they have to make a little adjustment there. So he's got some backside help for the times he's getting beaten. But I think that's a great point, is it may not matter. You know, if he does go for another 45, if they contain everybody else, then job done. You mentioned DeAndre Ayton earlier, and I felt like in game one, it was almost like we were watching the Suns that went on that run last year where Ayton was just such a dominant force. How does he sustain that level of impact? Yeah, I think, look, he doesn't have the size in back of him or in front of him when he's facing the basket that he does against other teams. So he, you know, and he has such an array of offensive moves. He's so much better you know, then, you know, obviously his first two years in the league last year, he came into his own, had a great postseason. I don't know, you know, if he took it up that next notch early this season after they didn't get the contract done here. But, you know, he can he can just beat you in so many ways. He's so gifted at that size with his footwork and his foot speed and the shot abilities that he has, um, you know, and not having that huge size against him defensively is certainly advantage DeAndre Ayton. And I did think that the slight adjustment, at least it appeared, that, you know, Dallas was able to make in the second half and specifically in the fourth quarter was, you know, not getting beaten over the top against him. There were so many times where, you know, they would push it from one side to the next and whoever was, you know, going in and out of the lane would get caught kind of in the middle and then they would just have a quick lob over the top for an easy basket. They took that away a little bit. Can they do that again and can they do it for four quarters? I think that'll be, you know, the telltale sign if uh, Dallas is going to be effective tonight against him. Can they, in your mind, slow down Aiton and still have the resources required to shut down Chris Paul and Devin Booker? Yeah, yeah, that's the giveaway, isn't it? Because you look at the backcourt matchups and they kind of cancel each other out when you have Booker and Paul on one side and you got Doncic and Brunson on the other. Uh, So that's a great question. You know, I think about Boston yesterday and, you know, even without Marcus Smart and thinking, you know, what chance do they really have? And they put a great defensive plan together. Dallas has played great defense all year. If they can put that defense together and maybe Phoenix, you know, the shots that were going in don't, like they didn't go for Milwaukee last night. There were a number of times in that first half where shots that went down in game one for Milwaukee were going halfway down and popping out. So maybe it's the perfect scenario, and that's what it may take, is they get their defense, Dallas does, back on track, and then, you know, hope that some of Booker's shots don't go down. Same for Crowder, you know, uh, and and then, you know, Chris Paul maybe doesn't hit all those mid-ranges. So a lot of things it feels like has to go their way, but it all starts on the defensive end for the Mavs. We're talking to Mark Kestesher on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz flying solo. You can check out Mark, obviously, uh, NBA on ESPN Radio play-by-play. He'll be on the call tonight. And I I always think of pressure in these situations, Kesty, because it feels like, most teams coming off a run like the Suns had last year and then coming off a regular season like they had this year would be under an intense amount of pressure. It doesn't feel like externally, nationally, we put them under that magnifying glass. You're around the team. What's the level of pressure feel like coming internally for the Suns? You know, I wasn't around the first round series, but I had to imagine that it went up a tick or two, especially when Booker got injured. Uh, and, and it was not a great matchup for them. I mean, they, they didn't match up as well against the Pelicans as they may against the Mavericks here. But I don't sense it at all since we got here. You know, we, we did the uh, Memphis Golden State game on Sunday. 
We flew in day of on Monday. There was, you know, for game ones, you don't really sense that pressure for either side. You see what happens, and the losing team adjusts, and everyone, you know, makes their, their little tweaks. So I never really felt it for Phoenix. You certainly don't feel it now. I have to believe that, you know, I think most of us were questioning, you know, what's going on. You know, they have enough even without Booker, but they just were struggling against the Pelicans. And then, you know, Chris Paul has a 14 for 14 and good night. And you feel <laughs> you feel good about yourself again. But they're just so they're just so confident. The one thing you notice all season long when we came in here for regular season games or had them on the road is even when they're down five, eight points in the fourth quarter, you know, with seven, eight minutes left, they were so confident that they would make a run. They would get their stops. And then you got, you know, the ultimate leader in Chris Paul down the stretch and they're as clutch as they come and Dallas was second to them you know since January 1st if you're tracking clutch points clutch time all that kind of stuff Uh, so I don't you know I can't speak for certain how much more pressure there was on Chris Paul and the Suns when they were in the midst of it against New Orleans and facing a potential seventh game Uh, but I would doubt it wasn't as high as the rest of the Suns fans felt because they've done it over and over and over this year. Whenever they've been doubted, whenever they've been behind, they always seem to come out on top. That just seems to be a common thread when I keep watching Memphis and when I watch Phoenix both. Like, it's just two teams that never seem to be flustered by anything, Casty. It's uh, obviously everybody can check you out on the broadcast. As always, I know you're there and you're really busy. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me. You can be my Chewbacca any day, my friend. <laughs> hey, as long as you keep playing great music. Was that James Brown I heard coming in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, just, we, yeah, I mean, I'll tune in just for that. Look at that. See, we, we, <laughs> we always want to make sure our guests feel welcome. Kesty, thanks. Have a great call, my friend. Thanks, Fitz. Appreciate it. Don't forget the NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tonight, the Suns host the Mavs, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 9.30 Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. As Mark Estrecher just told you, you do not want to miss the pregame show. They've got a great interview with Jason Kidd. Get you caught up on some of what he sees that needs to change in this series as it continues to go on. In the meantime, there's been breaking news with Ben Simmons. We'll get you caught up on what it is and what it means. We'll tell you all about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. I think Billy can't take no more. I think that's what's happening right now. The game's not going Philly Billy's way. What a dramatic shift in the, in the same song. Like, well, I mean, that was for Ben Simmons. If you know your music, that's Carl Thomas emotional, so... Wow, I was just, I, that was a tease for you. I also like the fact that you started by saying, "If you know your music, like there's like if you don't know that song, like is that is that the game we're gonna play?" Like, I mean, it's an elite song. I mean, you're a music savant, so I would assume yeah. that you would know. I'm that just song. saying that the overall general premise that you know, uh, like you, you only know that song if you don't know that song, you don't know any music. Like, I think there might be whole chapters of music out there that are missing from your lexicon, Philly Billy. I'm just saying. Maybe. Show tunes. But we're not talking about that right now. Okay, perfect. Uh, Philly Billy's angry, and that's what I'm going to make this nickname stick. He's angry because Miami's up by 11 now. I don't think any of us are, though, particularly surprised. Like, the fact that Philly has held in in this series in general right now uh, without Joel Embiid it, it says everything. And the first two games being in Miami, I'm just not like this is, is, is bad for my profession, but just being real. It's hard for me to take this big hot take out of you lost the first two games away without Joel Embiid. But that looks like that's where we're headed. Miami now up 89-76. So, uh, obviously, that is some big news. I also have been asking you guys to chime in on the social medias, on the Twitter machine, to tell me the villain that you are must see. And this all comes from Draymond. Just everything Draymond says right now is just spectacular. It reminds me of my 80s wrestling roots. 
I love seeing all of the way that he works the crowd, gets everybody worked up, and then Mike drops by flipping off the Memphis fans last night as he was headed back to the locker room after being elbowed in the face. So uh, ultimately, a lot of you guys chimed in. I got a ton of uh, Dennis Rodman. I think that makes sense. Blake, though, also said Kevin Garnett, Meta World Peace were great villains in their time. I, I don't know, Meta World Peace and Villain together sounds uh, difficult. A lot of Oklahoma, Oklahoma fans suddenly getting me Lincoln Riley pictures, like, but it's all fans with Lincoln Riley, which is a little confusing to me. Like, like Lincoln Riley with Oklahoma fans is the ultimate macho man. Like, he was a good guy. Now he's a bad guy. Like, he's going to become a good guy again. What are we doing? He's a heel. He's a face. He's a heel. Who is he? I love all of that. Uh, Devin, was there is there a villain that you absolutely, like you're a big, huge Giants fan. Like St. Bonnie doesn't have any villain. Is there a villain that you're a pro or anti from as a Giants fan? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, anyone in the NFC East, really. Like Don McNabb, never really liked. Tony Romo, never really liked. T.O., never really liked. That's Eagles, Eagles and Cowboys. A bunch you, of those guys. But like a lot of those guys weren't necessary necessarily villains but i will say as a raiders fan like bill romanowski when he played for the broncos he was a villain and then he signed with the raiders and everybody loved him like that's the weirdest part of fandom it's like i hate that guy. oh he's a raider now i'm all in on it uh not everett turner uh tweeted me and said prime richard sherman wasn't the villain we deserved but the villain we needed like that's a good example. Richard Sherman. I'd say Marshawn at times was considered to be a villain, but uh, whole Seahawks team you could say were villains. Ah, that might have made him what what it was. Except Russell Wilson, because I mean he's just a great guy. All the time. Yeah, Russell Wilson is. A, I've never heard of him. I, I hear he's a quarterback for another team in the AFC West. I, I lost to me. I've never never heard of him. You're right though. Uh, I think a lot of those players played it up uh, to a certain extent. I'll show my age a little bit, but I feel like. Michael Irvin, back with the Cowboys, played the villain role pretty well. Like th- those are guys that y- you you felt like they were villains, but you had to watch them. And again, kudos to Draymond for finding a way to use his truest personality to get everybody to want to have more Draymond. Like one of the things that I say constantly in media is that if you don't speak, we eventually speak for you, right or wrong. And that's one thing that we've learned through KD, right? Like KD spent some time not talking, so we all talked for him. Kawhi was a great example when he wasn't really communicative with the media when he was trying to figure out where he wanted to play next. So it led to everybody speculating. The opposite end of that entire spectrum is where Draymond lives. And the thought that you could walk off the court and immediately go do an emergency pod telling everybody exactly what happened on a night where you were objected with the flagrant two – and that speaks to understanding your platform. That speaks to understanding not only that you have a voice, but that you got a bunch of people that want to hear that voice right in the moment. That's power from him. You know, I, I've taken my time in my time at ESPN trying to really get everybody to know me. But one thing most people do know is my Raiders fandom. And now when news breaks for the Raiders... I quickly go to social media and try and give people what I think of it. You know, how how was the draft? Uh, you know, what did uh, what did the Devontae trade mean? Things like that. I immediately go to social media because there are people that I have a great relationship with on social media that want to hear that stuff. The thought for Draymond knowing in the moment, all right, this just happened to me. I'm not going to let anybody at ESPN tell my story. I'm going to tell it myself. Man, that's power. That's understanding the power your voice has. That's understanding the amplification your microphone has. And that's keeping your own story in your own pocket. I got nothing but respect for it. And the more he continues to double bird the crowd on his way out of the ring, 
the more I love the macho man meets million dollar man element of it. The more he says, hey, they can find me. I make plenty of money. Oh, I love the swagger that comes with it. And I love the understanding of exactly who he is. Speaking of understanding who he is, we've been trying to get understanding on Ben Simmons at Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo. We do have news that is broken tonight on Ben Simmons. I want to make sure everybody knows he will be undergoing back surgery. Expected uh, recovery timeline, three to four months. So he's going to require three to four months of rehab after surgery on Thursday, but is expected to be fully recovered to return to court well ahead of preseason training camp in September, sources told ESPN. So remember, he's only 25, and he's going to be undergoing a microdiscectomy. Discectomy? I can't say that. Didn't stand a chance. To address pain located in a herniated disc in his lower back. The Nets said that in a press release. So they tried to get him back on the court. A lot of people have spoken for Ben Simmons. A lot of people have spoken about Ben Simmons. A lot of people have questioned Ben Simmons all the way across the board. And one thing Sarah and I said a few weeks ago that may not have made headlines, but I think is important to remind everybody right now, is that the only real conversation regarding Ben Simmons, the only truly informed conversation that can happen is a patient one. Because when you're talking about back pain, who knows? When you're talking about mental illness, who knows? I'll never forget, I... uh, I herniated a disc uh, while I was working at ESPN and I was in Connecticut by myself at the time and I had to like uh, crawl myself up a set of stairs. Oh, it's the worst thing ever. And I was working with Devin, actually, producer extraordinaire. We were working on the early, early, early morning show one day and I was in the middle of talking and in the middle of talking, I just went, ah! I couldn't help it. It was just a like, I didn't even move, but my back moved for me and it was excruciating. And at the time they thought they were going to have to do back surgery. I went through a bunch of rehab. Back pain is a weird thing that comes from nowhere sometimes and affects you however it chooses to in the moment. I can't imagine being an NBA player dealing with any level of that. So again, with Ben Simmons, it's easy to step up and doubt everything because of the body of work that we have seen and the things that we haven't seen. But ultimately, none of us are going to know until we have the opportunity to see what happens. Toughest part of this job, toughest part of this industry is that you're forced to write a book report after every chapter. Sometimes you're forced to decide whether a season is good or bad after one game, whether a quarterback can play or not play after one drive. You're forced to decide if the draft was good or bad before the players have ever even stepped on the field. What do you do when you have a body of evidence that could be used to support someone being hurt and needing time, needing recovery, or could be used to support somebody being soft and being incapable of handling the platform. That's where we are with Ben Simmons. And this choose-your-own-adventure will be impossible to decide how it plays out until ultimately we let it play out. Might not be the sexy take, but in the case of Ben Simmons, it has always been the right take, and it continues to be the only right take. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.